Please remain standing for the reading of the Word. We have three passages this morning. Uh, We are clustering our Advent sermons around the prophecies of Isaiah, having to do with the coming of Christ. And not only are we using the theme of O Come, O Come, but we're also including several titles and and designations for Christ and thereby learning a little more of the full-orbed truth about who Christ is and what he is doing. I didn't say just has done, but is doing and will do. So these are the cluster of scriptures. The first one is from the ninth chapter of Isaiah, a very familiar passage, and we'll read that. And then we'll move over a few chapters in Isaiah and read a, an episode, a little bit of an episode that took place during the days of King Hezekiah, of to whom and for whom the prophet uh, uh, Isaiah ministered. And it's based upon a passage back in 2 Kings 18. 2 Kings 18, 19, and 20 are the story of the reign of King Hezekiah. And during that reign occurred the greatest crisis in the history of Judah. And that was the northern Assyrian invasion from which the Lord spared them and saved them and preserved the nation of Judah for another hundred and some odd years before it finally fell into captivity with the Babylonians. And then the third and final is just a quotation out of the book of Revelation. We'll see how this all ties together uh, if I do my job. But hear now the word of the Lord. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth, And forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Then Isaiah chapter 22, a few verses in the the end of that chapter. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkah, and will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to the flagons. In that day declares the Lord of hosts, that the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way, and it will be cut down and fall. The load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. And then finally, all the way over to the Apocalypse of St. John, chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, what is this all about? This is about the kingdom. We living in a democracy don't really think a whole lot about kingdom. 
Most of the countries and the civilizations of human history have known a lot about a king because most have been ruled by monarchy or something very close to it. We have, in this country, eliminated the office of king, and so we don't really sometimes understand a few things about that office. One is, it's an office by appointment. It comes by divine appointment or it comes by um, uh, right that descends by family. It can come in uh, ways of uh, hard revolution. It can come in ways of quiet desperation. But a kingdom comes. And the kingdom that will rule all the kingdoms, and even, even is beginning that conquest today, as the kingdom of God, according to the parables of Christ, is extracting from all the ethnic groups and all the other kingdoms citizens out of the kingdoms of the ancient Middle East, there come citizens. They're called believers in a new king. They're those who've come to faith and sworn their allegiance and bowed down before and now follow and obey and serve a new king. That is King Jesus. And that's really what the coming of Christ was all about. It was the inauguration on earth of the coming of a king. In fact, we see it there in Isaiah where it says, unto us a child is born. The birth of a child speaks of Christ's humanity. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He was born into the human condition. He was 100% homo sapien, human, man. But also, it says that a son is given. That's royalty. That's a title. The scriptures say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. That is an anointing, that is an incarnation, that is an enthronement. That comes from on high and it speaks of the deity of Christ. Christ is not only completely human, just like we are, but he is fully divine in every way with God Almighty, the Father. And therefore, he comes as a unique person who's perfect to be the mediator between divine, that which is transcendent and godly, and the human, that which is temporal and earthly. And so that's what we have there. We have a man in the middle between all that is God and all that is human. And he comes to do a task. But the word that we focus on today is this idea of the key of David. Last week we saw kind of a strange concept called the stump and the root of Jesse. Remember that? And we talked about what all that teaches us. Well, this phrase here, the, the uh, uh, key of David teaches us something. And the key in anywhere you look at is that which unlocks is that which just brings about, opens up, but it also that which shuts. And around this one person, this son who is coronated king and who is of our very flesh, rests all of the authority to open and close, to shut in and to shut out, to release and to capture. It's a sovereignty. It's a, it's a divine authority that he has. In fact, the scriptures speak... In the, in the uh, language of 
of a couple of ideas. The word often is used for the word power. It's sometimes called the power of the keys. And the Bible t- speaks of the keys to the kingdom. It speaks of the keys to death and hell. It speaks of the keys to the bottomless pit. So if you run this reference through scripture, you see that what we're looking at is absolute final assignment, authority, verdict. It is a, it is a very um, regal term. They hold the keys. The king holds the keys. So we see in this passage some interesting things. This, uh, this first idea is the idea of authority around the idea of a, of, of a royal key. Uh, it is expressed in, our, in the Greek language by word exousia. And it means right, authority, warrant. It means it can be to be authorized. But not only is it a right, a power is a right, but it is also used in the sense of being a power. And this word you're familiar with when it says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God and his salvation. The word is dunamis, and it means an active power, a power to actually accomplish. It is the dunamis of capacity, ability, strength. So the king has not only the right to do with your soul what he wants to do, and Jesus tells us to fear him who has the power of life and death over us. That's a hard notion for some people to swallow. In fact, in our sinful rebellion, we just don't like it at all. But the fact is there is a sovereign in the universe that has absolute power over your life. And he has a right and authority as your creator to do what he wants to with, his, with your life. So we must think in those terms and begin to get our minds yielded and adjusted to this notion of absolute authority. Just like the Philippian jailer had a whole belt full of keys, the king of kings holds the keys. He holds the keys to it all. He is, he is absolute sovereign and has a right to be that. But not only does he have a right, is he authorized to do it? Does he have a warrant to have a con- absolute control over your life and over nations and, and the whole creation? But he also has the ability to do something about it. He not only has the right and the authorization, but he has the wherewithal. He has the, the uh, authority to rule and to take dominion. And, and these two Greek words that I just mentioned, exousia and, and dunamis, are, have matching Latin words. And of course, so much of theology in the Western church moved into Latin. So you have to pay attention to that. The word uh, that is analogous in Latin to exousia is the word um, Potestas, and it means the authority to the rule, or, and here's an interesting word, dominion, to dominate. And the word for dunamis is matched by the word potentia, which means authority, rule, and dominion as well. So you just can't escape it with translation. Uh, The Latin and the Greek, the whole heritage of this teaching about the kingdom of God comes to us in a pretty straightforward manner right out of the Bible. In fact, if you would understand the Bible... At all, you've got to understand something about the kingdom of God, God's righteous rule over all creation, God's righteous rule over the church, God's righteous rule over his people, God's righteous rule over you personally. In fact, if you don't understand that, you'll find yourself living a life 
displeasing to the Lord and a life of sin. If you don't understand that, you won't understand all the millennial positions. You won't understand the doctrine of salvation. There's just a whole lot about the whole notion of Christianity that is wrapped up in understanding the concept of the kingdom of God. The entrance into the kingdom of God, I'll mention parenthetically, is by repentance and faith. Repentance of your sins and your previous walk and direction, attitude, worldview, outlook, and behavior. Repent. And faith, believe. Simple, sheer, mere trust, dependence, and coming to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. And that's the way the kingdom is entered. It is entered by repentance and faith. God commands all men and women. God commands all to repent. He tells us to be careful that we escape the wrath that is to come against all rebellious subjects in God's order. And I won't, well, I'll just stop right there. I won't get sidetracked too much on notions of the kingdom because we got a lot ahead of us here and we got just a few minutes to do it. One is we need to t- take a good look at this story. This little story that's thrown in here is kind of interesting. It says, in that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and so forth. What's going on there? Well, let me tell you briefly that this is in the days, this is about 720 B.C., or seven plus centuries before Christ was born. That's how far back the prophecies go. Actually, they go back twice that far, and, and even further than that when you consider the, the prophecies of the book of Genesis. But those prophecies had to do with the coming of the king, the Messiah, the true son of David who would sit upon David's throne. When God established David's throne way back, he told told Nathan the prophet way back in 2 Samuel 7, you read about it, where God just simply says, I'm going to establish this little, of all the kingdoms of the world, I'm going to establish this one little mid-eastern potentate as the eternal throne. And he put that designation upon King David. And that's the throne. And there were the descendants of King David came along, and you know the story of, of, of Solomon and then Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the splitting and the dividing and all that. But all through, God says, it's that kingdom of David, that house of David, the lineage of David, is who I will rest all of my divine authority in. And the authority, along with great authority, goes great responsibility. And the great responsibility is now this king has not only the right to judge, but he has the responsibility to do what's right. Do you hear that? God not only has the right in Christ to do anything he wants to with your life, but he has the moral responsibility as to his character to do that which is perfectly righteous and just with your life. He will establish a rule of justice. He'll establish a rule of righteousness. It's a, it's a holy rule. Holy means separated apart from, different than. It also means cleaned up and made fit and set aside for special use. That's what the Lord has in mind for his people. It's a royal rule over them, but it's a rule that has both responsibility as well as authority in it. And this authority that's placed upon the king is pictured in the Bible as a yoke. It's, it's a heavy yoke that bears a heavy burden or pulls a heavy load, and it's placed upon the shoulders of the, of the king, much like a yoke would be placed upon oxen to pull a heavy load and to bear a heavy weight. 
and, and this heavy load comes upon, upon Jesus Christ. This yoke is placed upon him, and he has this responsibility to do it. But back in the day, what happened in, Isaac, in Hezekiah's day, and I'll try to tell a three-chapter uh, story in about a few minutes. Uh, we'll see. King Hezekiah is threatened by the Assyrian conquest. Tiglath-Pileser III and Sennacherib, his general, have sieged and conquered the northern kingdom, the king of Israel, the ten tribes, and now they're laying siege to the southern kingdom. They've already conquered some of the cities on the northern edge, and now they're laying siege to Jerusalem, and, and Hezekiah the king cries out to the Lord for help, and the Lord says, don't trust in chariots, don't trust in your army, but trust in me. Well, meanwhile, the king wages a propaganda campaign, the king of Assyria, and he sends a man down to tell him, says, are your people trusting in the Lord? Are you trusting in your silly little God? What other God of what other city of the ancient world has been spared by their God? And your king is telling you to trust in the Lord. You'd better give that up and come and trust me. If you do that, I'll take care of you. I'll be a good king. I'll be a great sovereign reign over the people, says the king of Assyria. And, and the men who are in charge of Hezekiah's government tell that man, said, hold it, speak if you would in your language. Don't speak in the language of Judea. He said, because our people can hear what you're saying. They can hear these threats and they can then know what our decision is. So they continue to speak in the language that is the, the native tongue where everybody in Jerusalem can see what these propagandists, these emissaries of the king. Well, the guy that was holding the, the uh, responsibility of the prime minister or the first minister or the one that had the real administrative, the, say the COO, the chief operating officer in Judea, was a man named Shebna. And he's mentioned, by the way, in your text back in verse 15, before we get down to verse 20 where we read. And Shebna was the, was the one who was the steward of the house. He had control of everything. And he elevated himself to king, built himself a royal tomb, and did all this sort of thing. And he displeased the Lord. And the Lord is replacing him. They're taking away the authority of Shebna to be Hezekiah's prime minister and giving that authority to another. And that's what's happening in verse 15. He says, I will call my servant Eliakim and I will clothe him with your robe. He's talking to Shebna now, the prophet is, and will bind his sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. So the, the authority of the prime minister is being changed. God has changed Hezekiah's prime minister. And he promises that he shall be a father to the, catch that word, a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key or the yoke or the burden of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and so forth. So what's happening here is God is taking the authority, the exousia, the, away from one prime minister under King Hezekiah and shifting it over to another. For good reason, but nevertheless, God is, is doing this to his people. And by the way, if I was a preacher, I'd stop and preach right here. God is sovereign enough to do that. Uh-huh. He will take from Esau a gift to Jacob. He will take from Saul and give to David. He'll even, according to the book of Ezekiel, he will even take the the whole shepherds of Israel, their king, their priests, their prophets, the whole leadership group from Israel, take from them 
strip them of their authority and give it to his righteous servant, the humble servant, Jesus Christ. And that's what a lot of the New Testament is about. God taking the authority from the failing, unbelieving, unfaithful shepherds of Israel and giving it to the good shepherd who dies and lays down his life for the sheep and who leads the sheep and whose voice the sheep know. And this is what's happening in Israel. God is making this particular change. And so when he does so, he describes the authority. Now, just in the moments we have left, let me just point out uh, something about what this authority entails. And there are, in the passage we first read, there are several names that are given. Unto us a child is born, a son is given. That's the humanity and the deity of Christ. The government shall be upon his shoulder. That's the yoke. He has the key to, to call the shots. And he has the yoke to bear the responsibility before God of calling the shots. So that's what the office that Jesus has assumed as he becomes the king, as he is so anointed and so, and so uh, enthroned. And here in chapter uh, 9, this very familiar passage, is uh, a passage which mentions the word name. And his name shall be called. And what is listed here are four throne names, four royal names, titles, also descriptions of the king that sits on the throne. And if there's ever a good Christological passage anywhere in the Old Testament, it's right here. And listen to what these are. And I know you're familiar with them. We've heard them read repeatedly. In fact, I think almost every Advent season, one way or the other, in the 15 years I've been preaching this little service, we've managed to bring this passage into one of the Advent sermons, one way or the other. And it's worth it because listen to what it says. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government in peace, there shall be no end. In other words, it's an eternal reign. And it's mentioned again, and it says, The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will perform it. Well, what, is, what do these names mean? Well, the first one is wonderful counselor. That means the king that sits upon the throne is going to be a wonderful counselor. In the first instance, he's a counselor. He is one that is called to advise he is one who is called to lead, to support, to uphold, and, and to give the right kind of advice and the right kind of admonition to the kingdom. And Jesus is certainly that. In fact, he is a child of wisdom. Luke, in Luke 2, describes Jesus Christ's life in terms of Proverbs 3, where he says he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's Jesus Christ. He is a counselor. He is a, he is a consoler. He is a strengthener. Actually, the word comfort means with fortitude, with strength. He brings strength to the soul. Isn't it wonderful to have someone on the throne that, that holds the key to your life be the one that is the wonderful counselor? And the word wonderful means he's not only magnificent and wonderful in every way, that he strikes awe and wonder in our souls as we behold the beauty of Christ, but it says he is a wonder worker. If there's anything that characterized the ministry of Christ, it was miracles, incredible miracles, feeding up the 5,000, walking on the water, calming the storm, raising the dead, healing the sick, casting out demons, healing lepers, on and on and on you can go, the great wonderful deeds. In fact, one of the things that commended Christ to that current audience that saw him physically with their eyes was that he did incredible miracles that could not be denied. 
Nicodemus says, we know you're from God because nobody can do this kind of stuff unless he's from God. And that incited faith in the heart of Nicodemus as he began to believe. But then he learned in order to be a member of that kingdom and enter that kingdom, you must be born again. So it is waiting upon a new birth. What Another title, Mighty God. This is the concept, the word mighty and God put together is the concept of God as valor, God as the valiant, God as the hero. And that's exactly who Jesus is. In fact, the thing that the hero does is he, he rises, resurrection, raises, restoring the house of David according to Acts chapter 15, and he restores restores the fortunes of Israel that are talked about all through the Old Testament. The fortunes of, you know what is the fortunes of Israel restored? It's the blessings that come to us in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, come to us in Christ by Christ Jesus. Wonderful blessings that are temporal, that are personal. There's a prosperity gospel. Did you know that? There's a biblical prosperity gospel. It's not the one you hear on TV very often, but there's a biblical prosperity gospel that when it gets right down to it, Christ is going to prosper us immensely beyond all we can ask or think in this life and certainly in the life to come. He is a valor. He is a hero. He's an everlasting father. That word there, remember it mentioned that one of the things that they were going to give to Eliakim was he would be the father of the people. Well, this means that he'll be a progenitor of a family. He'll be the progenitor of a family. He'll be the father of a family. That's who Christ is. He's the second Adam. He's a new father of a new humanity. And it's a royal family. And it's a priestly family. Fulfilling the great promises all through the Old Testament of restoring the priesthood of Aaron. And restoring and superseding even the throne of David. Priest and king. A royal priesthood. And that's the way his people are. They're in that kingdom with him and they rule and reign with him. And they are priests along with him with all the, that goes with that. Well, and then finally it says he is the prince of peace. He's the ruler. Uh, just like Eliakim is a, is a type of Christ in our story today, uh, even King Solomon was a type of Christ. His very name, Solomon, Shalom. He was the son, he was the prince, he was the son of David. He was the prince of shalom, the prince of peace. And a lot in the life of Solomon is, is, typifies the great king. But Jesus said when he came, remember he said a greater than Solomon is here. That's what we have in Christ. We have this, this mighty God, this everlasting father, this wonderful counselor, this prince of peace. And then finally, let me say one thing as I close. You remember the Great Commission recorded in the book of Matthew? What did Jesus say to his disciples? Just think about that as I sort of give it to you. All authority, it's the word exousia. It means the right, the warrant, all authority in heaven and in earth is given to me. He says, then, therefore, as you're going, make disciples. Teach them to observe all things I have commanded you. And what did he finally say? Lo, I am with you. Emmanuel, God with us until the end of the age. What a wonderful Savior.
Jeg siger, 